Welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Q is about conversation. If we're really concerned about ending poverty, we've got to be more concerned about creating justice. Our cultural products as Christians need to both defy and resonate with the culture. But God's doing amazing things. His church is expanding, His church is growing. It's not what's the purpose of my life, it's what is the purpose that's been assigned. Stay curious, think well, advance good. This is Q. I liken it to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a, uh, it's a dark night, and there's going to be great sacrifice, no matter what the, no matter if it's uh, a dark resolution or a joyful resolution or a hopeful resolution. There's got to be somebody's got to go to the cross. Hi, and welcome again to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. I'm Paul Perot from Faith Radio with Gabe. Q exists to help Christians advance the common good. And as you just heard, to do that, we have to stay curious and think well. And Gabe, thinking well requires creativity. I'm excited today because we're sitting down and interviewing Sho Baraka, someone who has been a part of this Q Ideas community for a long time, bringing his art, his ideas, his music, his acting. I mean, all kinds of fun things we're going to talk about, as well as never afraid to go there on difficult conversations. And so today we're talking about creativity. We're going to get into vaccinations, the Tuskegee uh, syphilis study that took place in the African-American community many years ago, distrust in government. But also, what does it look like to not be polarizing in a moment like this? What does it mean for Christians to be the ones bringing people together, seeing the good in the other, being willing to live alongside people that might have different opinions and different views? And that's what I always love about talking with Show. He helps break it down as an artist to how we can think well about these kinds of moments. And so Show comes at us from Atlanta, Georgia. He's the co-founder of 4th District and the Ang Campaign, currently sits on their board, and also serves as an adjunct professor at Wake Forest School of Divinity. Yeah, plus he's a very accomplished hip-hop artist and author of a new book called He Saw That It Was Good, Reimagining Your Creative Life to Repair a Broken World. Now, doesn't that just scream of advancing good? So let's listen to Gabe's conversation with Show Baraka. It's just great to talk with you, and I've always loved and appreciated your thoughtfulness around so many different areas, and I do see you as a bit of a renaissance man. I mean, artist, somebody who understands uh, deep intellectual ideas and how they influence and shape culture, appreciates history, lots of fun hobbies. I mean, you make music, mm-hmm. you make TV, you do you do so many things. I mean, you're just such a great artist, and artists are often prophetic and help us to see the world maybe a little more clearly then we can see it in the middle of the moment that we're in. So we'll get in a little bit of that. But man, for people who haven't met you before, and they're just getting introduced to you the first time, would you just share a little bit about the backstory here of of where you come from, how you moved into this space of caring so much about the arts and creativity? Yes, I am a uh, storyteller by trade, if you will. Um, It was infectious. At a young age, my parents weren't creative necessarily. My father played professional football. My mom was more of an activist and I guess you could say a stay-at-home mother. The things that they put in front of us just created this an appetite for art and creativity. And then when you like, you know, you have three siblings and then a huge lineup of cousins, you, you're always fighting for attention. So in some ways you gotta be creative about how you get that attention. And I think that 
kind of just built something in me to perform. And then with my mother giving me this, you know, this consciousness about who I am in America, she was, a you know, active in the Black Panther Party when she was young. And so you, you kind of tether that activism with this artistry. And then she used to have me read a lot of Harlem Renaissance and study Harlem Renaissance for school. And when I did projects and reports, I couldn't do Martin Luther King. She was like, no, everybody's going to do Martin Luther King. I need you to do somebody nobody's heard about. <laughs> so those are the kind of pressures that I had. So, you know, but then, you know, you, you kind of grow up, you live life. I have an older, I have two older brothers. One of my oldest brothers was huge and, uh, or my oldest brother, brother, huge in hip hop, love hip hop. Mm. So he was the one who kind of got me into rapping. Actually, uh, I was doing poetry and then I saw all the girls like rappers, so I was like, "Yeah, I'm gonna start, I'm gonna start doing this rap thing instead of this porch stuff." Mm. My old, my another brother who's older than me, or, or another brother who's older than me, became a Christian while he was in college. I was still in high school, and he was more of like the um, my direct influence. And so he would share the faith with me and talk to me. And eventually, the gospel snatched me up when I got to college. Long story short met some individuals that you guys have probably never heard of guys like Lecrae and uh, Tadashi. And uh, we were in college at the university of North Texas. And long story short, we wanted to start a group to proclaim the things that we thought the world was the deficiency in, in the hip hop space. And that was our faith, the things that we felt could uh, change the world. If we're, if people are talking about their gods, we're like, well, here's the unknown God that we would like to speak about in a way that we feel is still, authentic to the culture. And so lead that all the way up to today. I've been known as an artist, a creative, a speaker, uh, study television and film. So I've had some time in theater as Q ideas knows we did a mm-hmm. kind of like a showing of our play, the, uh, the union. Amazing. Uh, it's based play. on I mean, 1968. Yeah, yeah. Such a sanitation workshop. Incredible story and show. And you're such yeah. an incredible performer in that. And, uh, that was so fun when, you and uh, Greg Thompson, somebody else who's been around the Q world for a while, performing that and that showcase we did at Q was awesome. And it was beautiful. Yeah, man. And I love how your art is always telling a story and and mentioning even the uh, sanitation worker strike, the history. History has been such a big, important teacher for you. And you try to do mm-hmm. that in your new book. You You use history a lot to try to teach and to try to help people become aware of some things that maybe they've not heard before your book he saw that it was good reimagining your creative life to repair a broken world it seems like a lot of people don't have a good grasp on history that this is one of our great challenges today and that we're not Mm -hmm. learning from the past we're not learning from the way in which bad ideas move forward and what would you say is the importance of recapturing that imagination and and getting more acquainted with our history to know how to move forward today yeah, I would say that I would disagree and say that we do have a grasp of history. We just have a grasp of history that is that is tailored for our own selfish interest. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we all approach information f- with a cultural bias bias. And this is not <laughs> critical race theory. <laughs> this is not Car- Get the Car- disclaimers Karl Marx. <laughs> yeah, Karl Marx didn't send me, you know what I'm saying? Yep. So but the reality well, the, the is, reality is, that we is all, like yeah, people just to affirm what you're saying as I hear it is the people who win write the history books, yeah. right? So that's that's how we learn our history. Absolutely. You tell you know, you, you, you get to tell the story. 
it's the way for us to come to a reasonable conclusion after we've gathered all these facts. So what do we know about ourselves? What do we know about our country? What do we know about relationships? And I do think that there is a bit of convenient forgetting or convenient ignorance that happens. And not everybody is conveniently ignorant. Some people are, are ignorant just because they just don't know because schools and people don't you know engage in the particular conversations. And so what I felt is pertinent is that as we are talking about history, this is basically storytelling, right? The Bible is a history book. It's also a, a, it's a story, it's a novel, but it's, you know, it's the Holy Scriptures. And it's telling us something about the history of man's interaction with its creator. And it's not about us, it's about God. And oftentimes when we look into the narrative of our life, we think about us, we think about me, 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 but we never think about well, this story is not really about me. I'm just a bit layer. I am someone who is passing through the ultimate protagonist. The stories we tell reposition ourselves to the periphery, but put God in the center. And I think we would begin to tell much better stories. People will be more dignified. We'd be more charitable with our convictions. We'll be more charitable about the things we are struggling with. We'd be more honest about how we feel. But culture, industrial complexes, whether it's Christian, whether it's social, it's, they benefit us to skew stories in ways that hey, uh, that can create platforms. And oftentimes we take advantage of that for our own personal benefit and interest. So yeah, it's, there's a lot. I just love story. I love history. Yeah. Well, talk a little bit about the idea of creativity that you write about, because I know you believe yeah. we're made in the image of God, therefore we are made to create, right? But for Christians... yes. How does this play out, and, and how should Christians think about this, especially those who, who don't think of themselves as being creative? Yeah. I, I, you know, I think oftentimes when we talk about creativity, we often think about vocational the, the arts. But the reality of it is is that Genesis talks about cultivation in a way that is the responsibility of human beings. It's not He didn't segment off the creatives and say, now, all right, you guys go cultivate and create culture, create society and ideas and products, and the rest of the folks will just consume. No matter where you do, where you work, you're participating in the cultivation of society. You are an engineer. You're cultivating something. You're a scientist. You're cultivating something. You're an educator. You're cultivating people. And in that cultivation, you're developing a product to, you know, just to put it in business terms. And so as you think about your production, are you creating for the flourishing of humanity or are you creating for your own benefit? And uh, oftentimes the way we viewed work, the way we viewed creation and creativity is only to be you know, esoteric and lofty in the sense that it has to be ethereal. But the reality of it is, is that every day we are working, we wake up and we go to create. As God looks over the, the void and he says it was empty, he creates and then he says it's good. Every Monday, we get a chance to wake up, go to work, create, and hopefully when you clock out or whatever you do, you you look and you say, you know what, this is good because I am contributing to the flourishing of my neighborhood, for my family, for the city, for the country. And uh, this is why I don't feel like, I feel like this book is not just a book for artists or creators, it's a book for everybody because we all contribute in some way. We're all painting our image of God and you carry that painting around and you say, this is how I view God. And oftentimes... The way you paint God is like a tyrant, you know, because if all you do is just go to collect money and to to move up the social ladder, then your God is very much like a slumlord or someone who doesn't care about the conditions that 
uh, people live in, all he cares about is your financial growth and contribution. And so I do think everybody is involved in this idea of cultivating and creating. Yeah. Well, and I, and I think as Christians, that's what we're called to do. Your subtitle for your book describes that. You talk about reimagining your creative life to repair a broken world. And this, I know 20 years ago when we began Q Ideas, that was the big theological conversation we were wanting to bring to the fore because it seemed like it had just gotten forgotten in like modern day mm. Christian discussions and, and theology. And that was the idea that the world's broken, but we get to roll up our sleeves, get creative, mm -hmm. partner with God and be a part of restoring things, repairing things that are broken. Absolutely. But to, to do that, you, you many times have to be educated on what was the original design here? Like what, what was this supposed Absolutely. to be? How, how ought this to be? And man, and it takes imagination to do that, which is to me where the artists are just such a gift. As you look at our culture today, 2021, and we think about imagination, I mean, are you finding that imagination is vibrant for people right now? Or do you feel like it's kind of closed in on them? And, and like some of the effects of technology and content and consumerism, are we less imaginative people than we once were? Or are you seeing it differently? Hmm. I see it as both. Uh, I, I try not to deal in the extremes because I, I do see that there are paramount issues. However, what I will say is like there's there's two that I can think of from your question. One, there's the issue of culture wars. I think artists are being used as mercenaries for um, culture wars from just people who have particular interest in deploying these artists to snipe out the opposition. And I don't think that's how artists are best used. Artists are best used, as you say, as being prophetic and, and putting them out there to speak to the times where they're not really tied to any particular restrictive or polarizing view. Because I often feel when art is trite, when it's obvious when it when it feels forced it it, it has less of an effect because that's it's just a sermon now it's just a lecture um but the beautiful thing about art is that it it's metaphoric it's esoteric and so therefore it, it disarms the listener and it gets them to reimagine a world in a different perspective and paradigm and then you get to play with the boundaries the other issue is is like yeah social media is in a way advancing the cause for the artist because now we don't have to go through pipelines through uh, institutions to, in order to be deployed or uh, to have distribution. However, I do think there's a little fatigue that I see happening because artists are having to always be on. It doesn't seem like there's a time that you can take a break. We're always sending the mountain. We're never taking the time to descend and live in the valley. And what ends up happening is, is you don't find respite, you don't get a chance to, to, to Sabbath, and you burn out. And oftentimes when I see artists who just don't take breaks, their art becomes terrible. And I'm just like, you know, you think about some of your favorite artists and why their sophomore albums were trash. <laughs> it's because they spent their whole life making their first album. And then the second album, they grow famous, and then they're touring, they're traveling, their tax bracket changes, their world becomes a different world, and they feel like they have to live at the top of the mountain. They can't descend because they feel if I don't speak, if I'm not present, if I'm not always on, then I lose relevance. And this is why we see Jesus taking breaks. He, he retreats. Yeah. We see Moses ascend the mountain and he descends the mountain. And so the artist needs to take breaks and social media is not a friend. And I also say that a lot of the culture around arts doesn't reward breaks for people because we constantly want people to have a presence, have a presence. How many followers do you have? What's this? What's that? And it teaches the artist that, well, the most impactful thing an artist can do is 
just be present and always on. So you have the issue of of being a mercenary for somebody's culture wars or being restricted. And I think a lot of churches restrict artists. But then you also have this issue of always feeling like I have to be present and never living in the valley to develop myself in my art. That is a good analysis. And I think, you know, as I think about artists for maybe our younger listeners or people who theologically are artists and they're, and they're wanting to like wrestle with something that you mentioned, it's this idea that in some ways art has gotten bastardized in the Christian church Mm. to be instrumental where it's utilized to advance a specific message versus having this intrinsic value where we value it as something that has worth in and of itself. And like that one idea, I've seen young artists when they get their head around that, the freedom they start to feel to go create the things God's putting in their heart, but not always feel this agenda that has to get pushed through the lyrics or through the music specifically. Absolutely. Um, You mentor a lot of people, a lot of people, I know you have a lot of offline conversations with other artists. You're, You're in the room with them trying to create would you say that's changing for for artists who have faith and who are christians that they're they're feeling a little more freedom these days than maybe a decade or two ago i'll speak to the last 10 12 years in 13 years in which i've i feel like i've been engaged in the, in the industry i do feel like there are a lot of artists who are finding the liberation in their own voice and their own platform uh but there's two things that comes you know two consequences if you will one is that they recognize the more liberated and the more autonomous I become, the industries in which I may have grew a platform in does not incentivize my liberation because there's a particular product that they want. And there's no shame. Well, yeah, some shame to these to these industries. But I understand why, you know, for instance, if I can talk about like Lifeway banning my album, <laughs> which was ridiculous. But if we understand the culture of why they did it, yeah, it makes sense because culture like, you know, Mothers and fathers, they don't want to have to sift through music in order to make sure that this is palatable for their children. And so you create an industry where it's like, oh, well, if you like Lil Wayne or if you like Drake or if you like Kendrick Lamar, then you'll like show and Lecrae, but they're clean and they're not going to talk about the issues of that, that, <laughs> that right. you don't want your kid to hear about. And so, but the moment they get a hold of it and they hear it, they'll be like, hold up. These are human beings who wrestle with some tensions as well. So they may talk about some tough things. Plus these are grown men. They're not teenagers. <laughs> so I expect them to talk about grown men things. Yeah. And so now you have a problem and you get kicked out. One, the artist has to understand when you move, you remove yourself from the particular industry. You have to realize that there are going to be financial consequences, maybe some social consequences. But the other thing is, is that they're going to replace you with somebody else because there's always somebody else who is willing to take your place for that one. It's like drug dealers. Like you, you know, police can remove one drug lord, and guess what? Somebody else is going to take their place and supply the streets with a product that people want. It's it's a revolving door that I think in some ways needs to be blown up, but I also get why it exists. Yeah. As we look at our world right now, I mean, this moment, polarization, tribalization, it seems like every year we're like, oh, it's more divided than ever. And it just keeps going there. (laughs) Um, What do you think the opportunity is in all this? Like there's a dark side, there's a hopeful side. And I'm I'm curious, like if if we don't participate in in the redemption of what God might want to do in a moment like this, What's the dark side of this? What's the hopeful side that, that as you look to the future, you're like, hey, incredible opportunity could come out of this moment? I liken it to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a, uh, it's a dark night, and there's going to be great sacrifice, no matter what the—no matter if it's 
a dark resolution or a joyful resolution or a hopeful resolution. There's got to be, somebody's got to go to the cross. And um, when you look through great revolution histories and great transformation, there's always been some sort of revelatory act that's happened that took people from prideful to contrite, whether that be violence, whether that be war, whether that be some sort of famine, it, it's something, right, that, that shakes the people up. And we've had one thing that could have done it, which was COVID, and it did not do it. It's, it's, it's even intensified. And so I do think we're at a midnight hour where we're going to have to decide, do we cry to the Lord and, and act like nothing's happening Lord, remove this cup from me or recognize, like, no, we, we have to go to the cross. And what could happen is that the church can lead in a great revival of what it means to be salt and light in a, a dark world. Or we can watch, um, we can continue to argue as Rome burns down. Yeah. Well, I know it can be sobering to hear and think about that. But again, sort of bringing some picture and color and even some theology to the, the moment that we sit in. Um, and I, I do try to put, man, the hopeful lens on, right, of, of God at work and, and redemption and mm -hmm. opportunity and revival and repair and, and all of that. But as you know, you get into the work of this and it's, it's hard, it's messy, it's, it's, um, it's like it's amazing how the enemy also gets into this work, right, and constantly is helping create division and stoking fear and, and creating unnecessary problems. It takes relationships, friendship, and, and a lot of work. And not everybody's willing to go there or do that. I know you are, and you've been doing it. And you're working with the Anne Campaign and Justin and, and so many just trying to faithfully help people rise above some of these tribes and think well about what they're doing. And that's what we care about here. I'm curious, in your bio, you went to Tuskegee University. Yep. The Tuskegee's come up a lot lately in the news, because there's a lot of discussion around distrust amongst the African-American community with our government as it relates to the latest vaccine rollout. Mm -hmm. And there seems to be just a high portion of the African-American population that just is saying, uh, not interested right now. And, and this gets pointed to this study that many people may not know about, but that basically was a study that was an experimental study on African-Americans that was horrific. In in your view, I mean, you don't have to reveal exactly what you think about all all of what's happening with this vaccine rollout, but yeah. do you think government mistrust and healthy skepticism towards government solutions to our problems is something that helps us if we carry that, or do you do you see it as a problem? I, I am um, I am a firm believer that the government is necessary. However, it is not the most efficient mm -hmm. <laughs> when it comes to getting things done historically as you as you communicated as a man who went to tuskegee as a man who grew up under the uh, tutelage of a woman who wasn't a huge fan of government intervention who's experienced some, some things who has some kind of connection to like cointel pro where the government was intentionally dismantling black liberation movements and parties. And so I, I will say that my opinion is somewhat biased. However, I will also say that I am also, you know, vaccinated. And and the reason why I'm vaccinated is because it's a large part of why I'm vaccinated is for the, the benefit of my neighbor. But I also recognize that 
there are people who are in my family, close family, friends who who have a distrust for the vaccine. Mm-hmm. And I am not of the ilk who tells people what to do with their body. I just, you know, no. I, I just I don't. However, what I will say is that if you are not going to do it, how can you live in such a way that as best as possible, as much as you can control, live responsibly for your neighbor? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and so I do think there are protocols, there are things in which a person who does not want to be vaccinated can still do in order to show love. And and then there's a whole other aspect of the vaccine. Like, you know, I mean, a lot of people struggle historically, a lot of, you know, African-Americans struggle historically. And, um, and, and I'm not trying to say that all black people are poor because that's nowhere where I'm going. But if you, there, if there are studies in particular communities that there's a, a great disparity in who's getting vaccinated, um, these people, you know, who may be in this particular count, they don't go to the dentist probably a lot. They don't have a regular doctor's appointments a lot. And so you just assume like, oh, well, I'm supposed to just jump and go take uh, this vaccine and just, uh, you know, and act like it's it's all great. We don't know what the different types of social obstacles people are wrestling with. And so I, I try not to to impress my own personal convictions on people. I think the challenge is how do we respect one another's personal choices and how do we create space for people to disagree, but do it in a respectful way. I feel like there's gaslighting going yeah. on. I feel like there's a desire to continue to divide and so to have a lot of grace in the midst of that seems to me to be an important way forward. Yeah, and it's 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 just really interesting because I'll I'll know activists who were, you know, anti-government agencies when it came to the vaccination or the uh the syphilis testing in Tuskegee or the the um sterilizing of women in North Carolina in the 70s. There's many different government interventions in which they've overreached their, their, their medical jurisdiction, if you will. But because it's politically expedient, people hold postures on particular things. And, I, and I'll say that for the right as well. I mean, there are particular convictions in which we all need to say, all right, are we holding this posture just because it's it creates some sort of opportunity for my side to win? Right. Or are we really, to your point, being compassionate and saying, look, what about the other? And and for me, let's be consistent about how we love in one another and doing it in a charitable and civil way. This is Q Ideas with Gabe Lines. And again, that was Gabe's conversation with Show Baraka. We are quickly running out of time, but let me remind you that Show's new book is called He Saw That It Was Good, Reimagining Your Creative Life to Repair a Broken World. Definitely worth the read. Thanks again for listening to Q Ideas. Remember to connect with Gabe and his team at qideas.org and request a 30-day trial subscription to the Q Media platform. Lots of great content to help you think well. I'm Paul Perot. On behalf of Gabe, have a great week. This show is made possible in partnership with Faith Radio and Northwestern Media. Thank you for listening to the Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make your gift now at MyFaithRadio.com. 
To avoid missing future editions of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons, subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or on your podcast player. And thank you for sharing this audio link with a friend and growing the impact of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons.